Uh, good morning. It's good uh, to be with you guys today. Um, as you know, if you guys have been here the past couple of times I preached, it's uh, I'm the intern up here, and so part of the internship was preaching three times through the summer. And through those three times, we uh, I decided that we we're doing a three-part series on on the gospel and kind of all that it entails. And so this is obviously the last one because my internship's over as of today. And um, and so the first one that we looked at, we were in uh, Romans 1.16, and the first sermon was on defining the gospel. Because before, with the next two ones, we could talk about how it like impacts your life in different ways. We have to know what it is. And so we spent the time looking at what the gospel is and who the gospel is for. And just like a one-sentence summary, I guess we saw that the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone. If you want more than the one sentence, the sermon is online. But And then, so we talked about that, and we defined the gospel, and then the next week we talked about defending the gospel, and we talked a lot about looking at the Bible, what the Bible says about apologetics and how it applies to the Christian life. And so we saw that it's not enough just for Christians to know the gospel or to know what they believe. In a sense, the Bible calls us to know why we believe it and to be able to give good reasons to those who don't believe it when they ask tough questions. And so those first two sermons dealt a lot with with like knowledge, what you should know, like your mind. We, you have to get the gospel right, be able to define it before you can explain it to other people. And so but both with knowing what the gospel is and then being able to defend it, it was a lot of knowledge. It's a lot of stuff that affects your mind, being able to answer people's tough questions. But the gospel doesn't just affect your mind. And so with this last one, the sermon title tonight is Don't Get Distracted from the Gospel. So we defined the gospel, talked about defending the gospel, and then today we're going to end with Don't Get Distracted from the Gospel. And so that's, it's going to be more of I guess how the gospel like changes your life. The gospel does, if the gospel in your just changes what you know, then you don't have the gospel right. The gospel doesn't just inform your knowledge or inform your mind, it changes your heart. And so it does include knowledge and it does include your mind, but it must go a lot farther than that. And so that's where we're going to be today. And before we, uh, I'll reread the passage before we get in. I'm going to read a story, and the story comes from a book written by Joseph Ellis, and it's called Founding Brothers, and it talks a lot about uh, the beginning of this country. I've not read the book, so I'm not telling you to read all of it, just have an excerpt from it. And it says, in 1780, Major John Andre was captured while attempting to serve as a British spy in league with Benedict Arnold. They were hoping to produce a major strategic debacle on the Hudson River at West Point. By all accounts, Andre was a model British officer with an impeccable service record and manners who just happened, who had the misfortune to be caught doing his duty. Several members of Washington's staff, including Alexander Hamilton, pleaded that Andre's life be spared because of his exceptional character. Washington dismissed the request as sentimental, pointing out to his officers that if Andre had succeeded in his mission, it very well would have turned the tide of war. The staff then supported Andre's request that he be shot as an officer rather than hanged as a spy. 
Washington also rejected this request, explaining that Andre, regardless of his personal attractiveness and character, was no more and no less than a spy, and he would be treated accordingly. And then Washington had him hang the next day. And so what's interesting about this story is that you have you have a man who, as they caught him, when they captured him, he was dressed as a civilian and he had fake American passports on him, but he pretended to still be a British officer because he thought the officers that were coming to arrest him were British. And so he got caught in his lie very quickly, and it, was, it turned out very quickly to all of the, um, the officers of the Continental Army that he was a spy, and so they took him to General Washington to be dealt with. But, I mean, we don't, I don't know much about this Major Andre, but he had to be like an extreme people person, like to the max, being able to win over anyone, because he had many people high up in the army that he was trying to sabotage, willing to let him go, because it seemed to them that he was a man of great character. I don't know how you can convince people you're a man of great character when they just caught you as a spy, but but he did it. He had many people willing and wanting and pleading with Washington to let him go. And then after that, Andre tried to convince them. When he saw it was clear that he, that he was not going to be released, as he said, he asked to be shot instead of hung because it was a more dignified response, a way to be executed. For them, if they, if Washington would have given to the request and shot him, it would have been to them, that's what they would have done to other POWs. They, they didn't hang everyone. Hanging was supposed to be extremely like a way to make a statement if you're killing someone and you hang them. And so what's important is that these officers, these American officers were letting themselves get distracted from their goal in war and they were getting distracted from from the, the real heinousness of Andre's actions by paying much too much attention to his his character, what he was saying to them, his words, and this like these the outside circumstances. They were trying to look at all these other reasons why they could treat him differently with ignoring the plain fact that he was a spy and there was rules on how you dealt with spies. And so we're going to look at we're going to be in the letter, uh, some of the letters in Revelation. In Revelation, there's seven letters. We're going to look at mainly one of them, but we're going to kind of touch on two others because they're related. And what's important to know just overall is that the churches in Revelation, most of them, especially the ones we're going to look at today, were getting distracted from the gospel by kind of putting up, they were flirting with false teaching and evil. As the Americans were not seeing the true character of who Andre was, many of these churches were not seeing the true danger of the mistakes they were making. And so, as I said, there were seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and they have a very distinct order. One, this the revelation is written by John, and when John had this revelation and wrote this letter, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And Patmos is 30 miles off the coast of Asia. I mean, it's like Turkey. Modern-day Turkey is where all these churches were located. And so, in one sense, these, this was the order of the churches is the order that, as John sent the letter, it would have been the natural order that you would have taken them. If he would have gone from Patmos to the mainland, he would have started with Ephesus, and then it would have been the normal, just following the normal roads of the road, he would have gotten to these cities in this order. 
But more important, it's more important than that. It's not just the natural order that you would have delivered this letter. The, the letters, the seven of them, they have like a mirrored pattern. And so the first letter and the last letter are related. In both churches, you see the first one and the last one, they have similar themes and they deal with a loss of love. The church no longer loves Jesus as much as they should have or as much as they did it when they first became Christians. And then you move in one on each side. The second letter and the sixth letter are both healthy churches that receive no rebuke in the letter. It's only good things in the letter. But then more important for us today is we're going to look mainly at the third letter, but letters 3, 4, and 5 are also related. And you see in 3, 4, and 5 a progression of sickness from in the churches at Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And so you see in Pergamum, as we'll see the first one, that they had, there was... There seemed to be unknowing to them that there was kind of false teaching and stuff beginning to enter the church. In the second one, the church is openly embracing wholeheartedly false teaching. And then the third church, they're dead. They, they don't have, it just says the church is dead. And so if it's, think of these three churches having a disease. The first church, they're starting to see symptoms. The second one, it's a full-blown disease. And the third one, they didn't have the cure, and so they died from it. And so that's kind of an overall, like, of the seven letters. But I'm going to reread right now Revelation 2, 12 through 17, because this is to the church of Pergamum, Pergamum, and that's the main one we're going to focus on today. And so it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword from my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. And so what you need to know about the city of Pergamum is that it was the in Asia for the Roman Empire, it was the it was the capital of Asia for the Roman Empire. It was like a capital of like a providence. And so in with these seven churches, it would have been like the Washington DC of its area. It was the center of religious and cultural life for the area. And Pergamum was also the first city to openly support the imperial cult, or which was known for emperor worship. So they worshipped whoever was the Roman emperor. They treated him as a god. And Pergamum was the first city in this area to openly embrace that and support that. And that's why they, that's why Rome let them be the capital of this area because they, they, bow, they came to the pressure and they openly supported this. But not only did they support worship of the Roman emperor, or the, the cult, it was the first it was the first city in Asia to have a temple to Zeus 
and Asclepius, which is a famous god, is a serpent god known for healing. And so the the temple that this god was under, they had a college of priests that were known that people would come from all over the world to come here because this place was known for supposedly having healing powers. And so that's why, so in Pergamum, that's why John calls it twice in like three verses the place where Satan lives. Where Sa- it's the place where Satan dwells because it has a high presence, higher than anything else in the area of false gods, including the imperial cult. And so, belonging to the imperial cult, since this city was known for it, and they started in this area, it became as like a test of allegiance. Are you for us or against us? And the way you could tell was whether you would participate in all the activities that belonged to emperor worship. And so, what's interesting is the church, from like an outside perspective, was kind of in like a lose-lose situation. If they don't give in to what Rome wants, and if they don't participate in in this emperor worship, and if they don't belong to the cult, they're going to face... They're going to face the sword from Rome. As you saw, this was the only church out of the seven that had someone that had been killed for their faith. Five of the seven, all seven are under persecution or pressure from the government to like give up their faith. But this is the only church so far that has had someone killed for it. And so they are experiencing worse persecution than any, than any of their churches. But if they weren't going to face the sword of Rome, if they gave in to their pressure... Now you have John telling them the words of Jesus, and he says, I have like a sword from my mouth. I'm coming after you if you do give in. And so when he says he has this double-edged sword from his mouth, that's pictured, that's first mentioned in Revelation 1.16, and it's pictured as Jesus. But don't think of it as literal. Jesus doesn't have like a sword-shaped tongue or something. It's like it's it's speaking words as judgment. It's judgment coming from his mouth. It's it's words. And so Jesus is saying if so in the church's mind, it's give in to Rome and have Jesus coming after you, the sword from Jesus coming to judge them, or you give in to the pressure, or you don't give in to the pressure, and you have Rome coming in already killing people that are part of this church. And so that's why their compliment from God when he says that you have remained faithful to my name is so much more impressive when you think about the location and the pressure that they were already under at this time. It was pressure that no one else in the world but them were dealing with. And so first, I mean, you see that Christians have to remain faithful in the face of death. If not, if you cave, you have Jesus coming in to judge you for it. And so, but there was... A problem with the church, though. The church is kind of reproved. They're not really, they don't really get a rebuke as they're doing something really wrong. It seems it's just there's false teaching beginning to creep into the church. But the way the letter is worded, it's almost like they don't know. Like the church at large doesn't know that there's a few people that are starting to beginning to go this way. And that's why they're not treated as harshly as the the next two churches that are all related in the middle. They're just saying, hey, watch out for this, because if you don't deal with it now, it's going to lead to worse things. And so he compares the false teaching to the teaching of Balaam. And the story of Balaam takes place in Numbers chapter 22 through 31. Those kind of nine chapters gives the whole picture of Balaam. And 
So you see that the real, because of Balaam, Israel started worshiping other gods. And you had people in Israel that started, starting to, uh, they started, that's when they started marrying people from other countries that worshiped other gods. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God had told them not to do that. And they, they really hadn't until this point, until Balaam. And it happened sometimes, but not really on a large scale as it did with Balaam. And so you see that Israel fell into idolatry and sexual immorality. And in Numbers 31.16, Israel's unfaithfulness is directly attributed to the teaching of Balaam. So it says, because you didn't deal with this person that came in that was teaching false things that had other gods, since you didn't deal with them as you should have, you kind of put up with them and you let them stay around. You're dealing with the consequences now, all these things that you see around you. And so we don't know much about this group, the Nicolaitans, that John tells them is coming into this church. We don't really know like specifics of what they were teaching or how it differed from true Christianity. But we can know from John that he says he compares it to Balaam because whatever they were teaching, it was going to lead to worshiping other gods into sexual immorality if they didn't take care of it, if they let it become full-blown in the church. And so probably what they were probably teaching then was that they were probably they were attempting to justify some level of participation in in the um in the imperial cult. They were trying to say that since we know Caesar or whoever's in charge of the empire, we know Caesar isn't really God. So is it really a big deal if we if we go to these feasts if we do these things, because if, if, it'll make the Romans happy, but we know it's not real. And so they were kind of, it was probably some people were tempted to do that and not face the consequences from Rome. They're like, if we give in a little bit, we won't have people killed anymore, but we're not compromising on our faith because we know it's not real. I mean, that's a terrible way to think about it, and that's why they're still, that's why John, uh, they're telling, John tells the church, take care of this. You can't do that. Much as like in the story we read, Washington didn't let people tell them, well, no, it doesn't look that bad. Maybe we can let them go. Maybe we can, we can keep them around. They said, no, if you keep them around, it's going to lead to more trouble than you see. So deal with it now. And so the question we have to ask today, are there teachings like this today? Are there, are there teachings that try to mask themselves as Christian or pseudo-Christian? Or maybe we think, well, I can tell there's something off with that, but it doesn't seem too bad. Uh, that guy, like, maybe there's a person in the church you know here that uh, maybe, he has, that's, maybe those are some weird beliefs, but it's nothing too bad. So, I mean, I don't need to correct him. And I'd say, I mean, it's hard to tell. There's a million different things like that probably that, but the church must be so in tuned with the gospel, and that's why we've spent three weeks on it, even though a lot of people think they have the gospel down and they don't need to be reminded of it. We've given this series to it because the church has to be so in tuned with the gospel that we have the ability to separate, recognize, and separate good teachers, good preachers, and good authors from bad ones. Even if you go to like the Christian bookstore and the Christian section, you're going to have a range of people that are good and bad. Some you probably read, should read, some you shouldn't. You're going to have in the same section of books everything from like C.S. Lewis to Joel Osteen. And so you should have, you need some sort 
of discernment, some sort of guide as to go, okay, I should read this. I should probably just pass that by, even though it's in the Christian section. And so, as John was telling this church, get some discernment. Go find the people that are starting to have these beliefs creep in and deal with it now so that your church can remain healthy. We kind of we have to have that today because especially as the church, as it grows and the culture around us is more secular, we've already seen that individual churches, individual Christians, and sometimes whole denominations cave on issues that no one has business caving on because they think it'll save them maybe a little person, they'll save them judgment. It'll make them look better in the eyes of people around them. And what John has already told them, if you do that, you might have people that aren't killed by the Romans. But he said, I'm coming and I'm coming to rebuke you. And that's going to be even worse than what they were already facing if they caved. But it's also interesting what, and so he tells them whatever false teaching, a lot of false teaching, whatever they were tempted to follow, and some things that we're tempted to follow today, it can lead to idolatry and sexual immorality. But the lure of these things is not just like an appeal to sin. A lot of times you think, well, sin is appealing, so people do different things. And that's true, but it, it, it goes deeper than that. It's not just that sin is appealing to Christians. A lot of times, especially with idolatry and any sort of sexual sin, a lot of times that people fall into it, is because they have, I mean, it's it's like a lack of love or misplaced love or some regards to that. And so that we don't feel the connection that we think we should with God. And so we think, well, maybe if I worship this other God or maybe if I spend too much more time here, it'll give me that satisfaction that I'm not feeling when I read the Bible, that I'm not feeling... When I pray, maybe, and we're tempted to think, not necessarily replace Jesus, but if I add Jesus and this, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. And with any sort of sexual sin, a lot of times people fall into it because they people, people have a desire for intimacy. And so if they're not getting it in the way they have, they're going to look for other ways to get it. And so false thinking, thinking that God or the situation you're in doesn't does not provide for these things, helps lead to these sins that we see in this church, not just the appeal to sin itself. And so, because that I mean, that's explains also explains why the church seems unaware of these people, because it's personal. These people are struggling with this lack of intimacy or this lack of love or satisfaction, probably in themselves, and they're not reaching out to other people, and other people aren't asking them what's wrong. And so then... That's how a church can be unaware that it's starting to crumble from the inside. And so this is why they don't receive as harsh of a rebuke as other churches, because it's not open. People aren't openly embracing these things, but it's a warning. And he tells them, if you do not repent and clear up these teachings, Jesus himself is coming to fight against you. And that also relates to the book of Numbers. In Numbers, when the Israelites began to worship it was Baal, but worship other gods. And at the height of it, they had people that were marrying other women from other countries and bringing them inside the nation of Israel. A plague started. And 24,000 Israelites were killed before the plague ended. And so 
the church would also have, I mean, not necessarily a plague is coming, but of saying there's punish, there's judgment coming, and that's how it took place. God didn't just look over the sins of Israel. He came and he punished it. And John's telling them the same type of thing. is Some sort of punishment is coming for you if you don't clear this up. But, and then he tells them, if you overcome, if you do clear this up, and if you keep on going, he gives them two promises here, and it says the church, and there's a promise at the end of every letter. It's not even the bad ones. They get a rebuke, and then it says, but if you fix it, you have all of this waiting for you. And so none of the letters really end badly. And so this one, he says, if you overcome, I will give you manna and a white stone. And these probably directly relate to that lack of fulfillment that we just talked about that leads to idolatry and immorality. Because idolatry, we talked about, you think God won't take care of you. And manna in the Bible is like the classic symbol of God taking care of people. In the Old Testament, Israel was wandering around with no food and they were complaining to Moses, why would you take us out of Egypt if we're just going to die here from starvation? You could have let us die there when we're at least being taken care of. And in the deep, in the depths of their despair, when it all looked lost, God made it like rain food. It came out of nowhere. They had no idea where it came from. And that's the point is that God will, took care of them with manna when they had nothing to do with it. He's telling them, if you hold fast to the gospel, if you remember, if you remain with the teaching, I'll give you some of my manna. He's like, I will take care of you even when the situation around you looks hopeless, even when you have people in your church that are being killed and others that are beginning to bring in bad teaching. He says, no, look, if you take care of it, if you stay true, if you run the course, I'll satisfy you. And then a white stone probably also is somewhat related to their lure for uh, immorality. And so a white stone had several uses in like the day of John's time. But what's important for us today is that a white stone was used oftentimes as like a ticket into these like pagan feasts that would happen in the temple. And so either to get into these, these temples, you would give them a white stone and you'd come in and then that's where they would have the feast. And a lot of times these feasts to other gods, they would have the feast, they would worship their other god, and then it would just end... And just people doing crazy, obscene things that we would never think of happening in some sort of like in a temple. It would end in just like unbridled sexual morality of people doing all types of things. And so Jesus is telling them, he goes, no, look, if you don't do that, if you remain faithful to me, I have a white stone for you. He's like, you can come into my feast. And this is probably hinting at as they would have had the entire book of Revelation read before the church in Revelation 19. 1 through 9, it talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so after after all the bad things that have happened in the book of Revelation, after all the persecution, after all the hardships that it shows that people are going to go through, things get better at the end. And then we see in the last couple chapters of Revelation, Jesus coming back. But before it describes that, in Revelation 19, 1 through 9, it, it talks about Jesus throwing a feast for like the bride who has made themselves ready, the, the people, the Christians that didn't cave in, the people that, that stayed faithful. And he's like, yeah, I have this feast for you waiting. You don't need these feasts now. So it takes care of those two things that they were probably tempted to do. And so we can see like the situation with Major Andre. The church had let the apparent harmlessness of, of true evil that was coming in their midst they had let this apparent harmlessness of the imperial cult and the harmlessness of 
caving to Rome in some sense distract them for their mission of remaining faithful to the gospel and spreading it to people around them. The church had a mission to spread the gospel and not tolerate sin. And they were trying to do both at the same time. And he's telling them, you can't. And so if the Americans had let Andre go, it could have cost them the war very easily because had the British captured West Point, it would have cut off the New England colonies from everyone else, and then they would have been fighting two wars. You can't get supplies through, and things probably would have gone downhill quickly for them. And if the church in Pergamum does not obey Jesus, we don't see the end of these letters. We don't see whether the churches obeyed them or not. But if the church doesn't obey Jesus and they don't listen to his warnings, he's like, they're going to face consequences that could possibly be the end of their church. And so very quickly, that's the main part is that letter. But then, as we said, the other two are quick are related. So we're quickly not going to spend any near much time on them, just kind of hit the high points. But it shows some of the consequences that were waiting for them if they didn't obey. And so very quickly, I'm going to read Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And it's the church of Thyatira. It says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and they eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who do not know the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of, rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very quickly, this was the least important city of the seven churches. The cities that the seven churches were in, this was the least important. There was nothing really famous about it. But what it was known for was having a lot of industry, a lot of trade. And they had trade guilds, which kind of like unions today, where it, they had trade guilds. And these guilds, if you, belong, you had to belong to the guild, really, to be in the industry. And these guilds enjoyed meals that were dedicated to false gods. And these meals, like in the other temples in Pergamum, they would end with unbridled sexual behavior. And so it would be nearly impossible for these Christians to belong, to make any money in the city, to belong to any of the industries, which is really the only thing they had going for them here, without belonging to the guild and without committing all of these terrible acts that came with it. And so that presented a major problem for them. It was either cave and do these things and make money or face having no ability to feed yourself. And so it seems there was a good number in the church that had just decided to cave. And their mind, they're like, okay, if that's what it takes to live here, we're going to do that. 
and they didn't really see a problem with it. And it said their woman, the, the person that was leading them was a woman, and that's why John calls her Jezebel. That probably wasn't her real name, but like they compared the teaching to Balaam in the last letter, they're comparing this lady to Jezebel. And in 1 Kings 16:31, Jezebel married the king of Israel, and he convinced his... And, through her teaching, Israel began to once again worship false gods, which led to a whole nother other number of other sin problems. And so the woman that was leading this faction in the church was causing people to stray from the faith, that was causing people to worship other gods. And so it's not like the last letter where they didn't know it. It wasn't secret. This was a, a well-known person in the church leading people astray, and the church still hasn't done anything about it. And so that's what he's telling them. Because the church at Pergamum would have heard the next two letters that were read. And so it's kind of like to them, he tells them, correct this. And if you don't, then they would have heard this letter. And they would have seen all the problems that were waiting for him if they didn't deal with them then. And so that's why he tells this church in Thyatira, hold fast. You already have everything you need. They already had the gospel. That's why he says, I'm not going to give you any other burden. You already have enough. Hold on to what you know to be true. Hold on, I'm coming back. You're not going to have to suffer through it that long. And so for us, it would be hold on to the last like two cents. What we've already talked about, the gospel, we spent a lot of time defining it and how it applies. And it's like, hold fast to that, no matter what else comes, and it'll be all right. Because once again, he tells them, if you overcome, I have this great blessing for you. So very quickly, we'll read the last letter. It's only six verses. And to the church at Sardis, it's chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but that you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember... So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my God and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And so Sardis used to be an important city. When the Persian Empire was in charge, Sardis was a booming city. It was more important than any of those cities around, but now when the Roman Empire, it's obscure. No one, no one cares about what Sardis is doing. The city had an impenetrable wall surrounding it. The city had never been conquered by people directly breaking through their walls. But twice the city had been taken over because they didn't guard the wall. They thought the wall was so strong, and it was, that no one could come over it, that twice throughout their history, they didn't send guards to enough places in the wall, and people literally just climbed over the wall and then attacked them, because no one was watching. And so the structure and the order of these three letters show that if you tolerate idolatry and sexual morality, it will lead to either your church dying. It went from sick sicker and jesus doesn't even say anything just says the church is dead but what's interesting is that that's not the only way a church can die because even though the order suggests that that's what's going on here but the church in sardis there's no mention of anyone in the church 
following idolatry or being caught up in sexual immorality. It was very clear on the other two churches, this is what you're doing and this is where it's going. But somehow Sardis had ended up in that place, but those weren't their problems because Sardis didn't really have a big Roman population. There wasn't really cults or all these other false gods there, but there was a huge Jewish population in Sardis. And so what their problem was, Judaism was the only religion in the Roman Empire that was not forced to be in the, in the cult, to worship the emperor. J Judaism was the only religion that had a pass from doing that. And so, if the church at Sardis could kind of just remain quiet, they could just kind of sit there and do their business, not cause any problems, in the first few years of the church, people had a hard time separating Christianity from Judaism. And so the church at Sardis was probably taking advantage of that, not separating themselves from the Jews in the city, and then they wouldn't face problems from the government around them because they didn't see them as any different from the Jews around them. And that's why uh, verse 5 is probably the key. Jesus tells them, if you confess my name, I'll confess your name. And John is telling that, and that's a quote from probably Matthew 10, 32 through 33, where Jesus tells them, if you, when Jesus' earthly ministry, he says, if you confess my name before men, I will confess my name, your name before the Father. But if you don't, I won't. And so that's probably what the church's problem here was. They connected themselves to Judaism so much that they weren't spreading the gospel. They weren't telling people the truth about Christianity so that they wouldn't face all the problems and all the persecution that was happening to all the other churches in their area. And so that's why Jesus calls them to repentance and he says, no, that's not how it works. You can't just, you can't just sit here. It's not enough that you have the gospel and that you are taken care of and you don't spread it. He goes, no. If you don't spread my name, if you don't spread the gospel, if you don't tell other people about me, because you don't really have me. I'm not going to confess your name before the Father. And so wrapping up, just to conclude, it's easy for individual Christians and entire churches to become distracted from the gospel. It can come, as we've seen from two churches, by tolerating false teaching which inevitably leads to sexual immorality and other sins. But that's not the only way a church can die because the church at Sardis prov proves and it brings a great warning that distractions don't just come from open and unrepentant sin. Many Christians are guarding themselves from falling into deep sin because they understand it's part of the Christian life, sanctification. They really are growing in Christ. That's why some of the churches he tells them, your deeds are better than they used to be. You're growing, but deep spiritual apathy is just as dangerous as open sin to the life of a Christian. So that's what you can learn from Sardis. It's not just sin that leads to a church being dead and being distracted. It's also just not caring, which is probably a great, a greater problem for many Christians today. And so we need each other to provide accountability. And so as the band comes up, we're about to move into a time of invitation where James will be down here. And uh, if you don't understand what this gospel is or maybe you've become distracted from it or maybe you realize that you've never really understood what it is, you can come talk to James or myself and we can tell you about this Jesus that provides the gospel or anything like that. But just from like wrapping up in three sentences what we can learn from the entire series as a whole and not just the sermon today, that the gospel is important for all stages of a Christian life. As we saw in the first one, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
And so the gospel begins your spiritual life. Of course, it brings salvation. But then you have to be ready and able to defend the gospel to all people, including yourself. And that's what we saw in the second one. And so the gospel provides what you need for evangelism or counseling. And then from today, staying focused on the gospel is the only thing that will keep you growing in Christ. And so you need the gospel your entire life because the gospel is what fuels your sanctification. And so you need to remind each other of the truth of the gospel regularly. We need to spread the gospel and we cannot allow ourselves to become distracted from the mission by tolerating evil or spiritual apathy. Let's pray.